Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick announcement. We're currently looking for an engineering manager to join our team. If you have expertise in React, Elixir, or Ruby, a track record of improving engineering processes, and a proficiency in the design, maintenance, and assessment of technical architecture, we'd love for you to apply. Our team is fully remote in the United States, and first-time managers are encouraged to apply. Head over to smartlogic.io jobs to learn more and submit your application. Thanks, and now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my spellbinding co-host, Sunday Mint, and my increíble producer, Eric Ostrich. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. <laughs> so glad you're on. So glad to have my team here today. This season's theme is adopting Elixir, and we're joined today by a senior software engineer on the news engineering team over at the Washington Post, Simon Glenn Gregg. How are you, Simon? Hey, uh, good to be here. I'm doing well, thanks. So we're really glad to have you on the show. We wanted to open with, I think, the question, the big elephant in the room, which is, you know, what kind of news do you engineer at the Washington Post? I feel like news engineering is actually kind of a funny phrase because it sounds like we're making it up. <laughs> so a lot of the work that the engineer team at large at the Post works on is around publishing. So, you know, helping our reporters and editors get their posts in and, you know, writing stuff, editing stuff, and then getting into the print newspaper. So my team focuses on tools that are very much adjacent to the newsroom. So tools that the reporters use every day, like publishing, but not in that main sort of CMS world that a lot of people work on. So obviously, the past two years, we've been very consumed with the 2020 election. I'm taking a deep breath right now because it's over. <laughs> so we were super focused on building out from scratch, you know, an elections infrastructure that would show live updating results, maps, data visualizations, tables that gave our readers as much information and analysis as possible about the results coming in. We also thought that the name was super duper funny. So can you talk a little bit like, I, let's just dive right into it, right? Like talk about specifically the prototype that you built in Elixir, what it was meant to do. Yeah. When, when we were sort of charged to build this stack from scratch, starting around last spring, like spring 2019, we had the target date of like January for the beginning of the primaries. That was when we need to have most of our stuff in a working shape. And we were going to keep iterating it, obviously, but like that was our big target date. So we had about eight months, maybe nine months to sort of prototype, not a lot of time. <laughs> And we were mainly concerned with how could we get our users live updates for elections data? How could their maps update in real time? Traditionally, the way that had been done was through a thing called long polling, where your page would load in the browser and it would, uh, on an interval, usually five or 10 seconds, it would you know, pull a file on S3 or you know, any, any kind of JSON file, um, take, you know, do a diffing in the browser, and then update components on the page. We use React on the front end for that. We were just trying out a bunch of technologies that would give us that sort of live feel as much as possible. Because like a lot of time users don't even realize that a page is live updating. So we want something that will happen fast enough that they will see changes before their eyes that they'll go, oh, okay, this is this was very much a live, you know. We had a strong suspicion we wanted to use WebSockets for this technology. And at least to my knowledge amongst the big newspapers, that hadn't really been done a lot. It was sort of new territory. Even the WebSockets themselves have been around, you know, part of the web standard for a long time. 
So last summer, when you know things tend to be a little slower in July, we tasked the three engineers. Each of us would take the three like senior engineers on the team would take a technology, run with it, see what they can do. And we had this sort of election in September. It was the North Carolina third congressional district house race. And we were going to sort of run our data fetchers and everything live for that night just to kind of because there's no good tests like a, you know, like a real election night. So that was sort of our immediate target. So we each built out a prototype showing the North. I'm just going to talk about the third district because it's easier showing the third district map. And we did it in Elixir. That was the one I, I worked on. And then the other one was in Node using a library called Socket.io. And then the third was kind of crazy thing written entirely as an nginx module using a thing called nchan so how did you come up with those three i'm assuming that node was something you were already using how did you end up choosing elixir as as one of those options yeah so we are very much a node shop node and, and python a lot on the back end it's a good question. I So one of the engineers on my team, Jason Holt, who is a brilliant engineer, he loves reading engineering posts. And he came upon this one called Elixir Ram and the Template of Doom by this guy named Evan Miller, which is like an awesome, an awesome post. He sent it to me. He's like, oh my God, check this out. Look at what this language can do with memory management. So he sent it to me. I read it and was like, this is awesome. Personally, I was just like a little tired of writing everything in JavaScript. So I was like, ooh, a new language. Let's do like in my spare time, sometimes I'll just do like the, you know, first projects for a lot of languages. Because uh, I you know, have weird interests, I guess. <laughs> that blog post was really was like, wow, this looks really super interesting. And the fact that the, the language is used in, in, in industries and sectors where liveness is very much a, a factor, it's something that's really important to users. We thought it would be a good fit for live election results pages. Looking at some of the like example projects, uh, specifically in Phoenix, Phoenix was like a way that we thought we could bootstrap pretty quickly by using that framework. Seeing some of the things people did with Phoenix kind of like blew our minds, like some of the games especially, we were just like, wow, this is so quick, performs really well in the browser. And yeah, we just got super excited about it and wanted to try it out. You had never written Elixir before you picked up this project? No, Elixir or Erlang. Yeah, I had, I had no exposure to it really. <laughs> That's really interesting. So how did you like ramp yourself up to get to a place where you were working on this project efficiently? I guess what I first did is I picked one of the Phoenix like example projects that I thought was especially cool. And I just kind of read through the source code a bit. For me, it's always like when you look at a repo, it's like finding like, where is the code actually? Like which folder is the code that actually matters in? So it's like finding that, reading through it, and then kind of going back, just, you know, doing the thing I do with any language where I'll do like the first Hello World project or polling app project, whatever, build that, like, okay. And I think I did the, the Phoenix like intro app as well, because we knew we wanted to use Phoenix. Cool. So when you were setting everything up, were you working on it like solo Elixir Island by yourself? Or did you have like a team of people who were helping you with the prototype? No, it was just me kind of like, you know, hold myself up in a room, not actually, but you know, mentally in a room <laughs> for yeah, probably like four or five days hammered it out. I definitely once I got to the point where I wanted to integrate it a bit with our AWS account, I pulled other people in. Part of what the app was doing was pulling data from S3 and dipping stuff with that and then also publishing stuff to S3. So I was kind of talking to people architecturally about how we wanted to do certain things. And also when it came to deploying it, I was consulting a colleague of mine, Eric Reyna, who is you know really good with uh, DevOps stuff and knows EC2 kind of architecture inside and out. So we worked a bit together on that. In terms of the actual Elixir code, it was mostly me. And they were also all working on each on their own prototypes and their own different languages. Was there some sort of ceremony around the projects? Like you guys were like, okay, we're going to start on this day. We're going to end on this day and present on this day. Was it sort of like that? Or how did that process work? Yeah, I don't 
remember the exact like days and everything, but you know, we definitely started on the same day and it was like about a week later, we have this one conference room on the top floor of the Washington Post building. It's called the Publishers Conference Room because it's where the publisher takes like very important people. It's got this long table, it's very shiny. And we booked, we, we sort of <laughs> like treat ourselves by booking meetings in there. So we had the launch the pitch day in that room and we each like put our prototype up on the huge monitors we usually use for, you know, important stuff and kind of walk through them a bit. Do you remember what the initial reactions were from your team? Yeah, I mean, everyone was really impressed by it. So the, the actual app, the way it looked is it was a map of the third congressional district in North Carolina, which is this, it's the outer banks of North Carolina, the northern part of them. And I was able to just get it sort of, I, I set the interval so high that it were like flashing updates and, you know, like as maps color in, they'll just get darker and it was two candidates. So they were just getting darker red or darker blue and each county was shading in and it was just happening really quickly. I set up a thing where I could kind of toggle the interval too, so I could slow it down and speed it up. And I was sort of packing together Phoenix, Phoenix templates to, to do that and just modifying SVG on the front end by changing uh, classes on the SVG to do it. But yeah, people were very impressed by the lightness of it, the speed of it, and also the control and inspectability. I, I pulled out the observer. Observer, thank you. Yeah, so I was like kind of showing them also the processes that were happening on the back end while while, while it was going on. So it was ha being able to have that, that um, introspection into the, so the back end while looking at the front end was also cool for people. Was this strictly a like a product demo or did you walk them through the code a little bit, show, the, show off some of the language features? I kind of showed them the syntax for people that had never written anything in it before. It was kind of like, oh, cool. Like, you know, I don't know what to do with this. That looks like code. I don't know. So I showed, I think I showed people the code, but it wasn't like a, you know, immediate like, oh, wow. You know, I'm just a little surprised that immediately the entire Washington Post engineering team didn't just switch to Elixir. <laughs> that and there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Throw out your entire computer and just start from scratch in Elixir on the beam. So a bit of background on that, I guess, is we'd had experience in the past where one engineer would kind of pioneer a new language for the, for the company and build something in it. We have this really interesting targeting system that was built entirely in Clojure about five or six years ago. It worked really well, but then when they started to try to hire against it, they had trouble finding Clojure engineers. There's never really the time at the post to like allow people to kind of go off and learn, learn new languages. They're just things happen so quickly, there's so many deadlines that like, they want refactoring that whole thing into nodes. So I think people had that, especially the directors had that in the back of their minds, like this has happened before, and we had to switch it all to node anyway. So like, you know, there was a bit of reticence there. Yeah, I guess that was our, our next question is just like, so after the presentation, what is the decision process look like? Like, how does somebody come to that decision? Or who comes to that decision? Yeah, we all voted, you know, the, the other demos went really well, too, the, the node Sakurai one and the NChan Nginx one. Those both had their drawbacks and you know pros as well, and we all just kind of voted. And I think the yeah the, the Elixir one got the second most votes, <laughs> but ultimately it was up to the directors to kind of get together and talk about how they wanted to move forward with it. And the first count of votes was Enchan, right? <laughs> I wish no, it, it was the project. We all loved Enchan, but it was a bit of a black box. Like there was, it was like six lines of code that did the whole thing. And there was no kind of observer equivalent there. It just kind of happened, which was amazing. But how do you debug that? I don't know. <laughs> did you get to chat with people who voted for Elixir? Like, did they say why they wanted to work in it? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is really excited about the sort of functional aspect of it. The The syntax was really appealing to people, the memory management, and just sort of the way that it's been used by other companies, you know, like like Discord, who are, like, are super focused on live experience. Like that sort of heritage was really exciting for people. I think people also raised that like we would want to, we want to also have someone 
you know, on the team who has, has experience in it. So we're thinking like, okay, who do we know on Twitter? Who's like an experienced Elixir developer that we could like hire as a consultant to kind of tell us, don't do that. Don't do that. We were talking about that as well. as definitely as a, a way to offset the inexperience that we had. Did any of your colleagues that you're aware of do their own exploration into Elixir and maybe toy with it in their free time? I guess, did you win over any converts over the long haul? I don't know about the long haul, but like I definitely, I encourage my colleagues to kind of take the repo, clone it, and try to add things to it, try to break it. A few of them definitely did that and were interested in it. But like I said, we basically had, you know, from July to September to build that initial app that includes the entire ecosystem of data fetching to like the front end uh, database tables. So it was kind of like after we did this presentation, we had to like start building the thing already. So people played around with it for a few days, I think. And then it was kind of like once they picked Node as the, the way to go, they just switched over to doing that. It's kind of the, the nature of working at a super deadline-driven place, especially in a crazy news election cycle like 2020. <laughs> well, I got to say, just in general, I'm pretty impressed with the culture that would encourage this kind of testing of different languages and encourage people to... I mean, you all built the same prototype in three different languages, right? They weren't different. So yeah, that to me is just a remarkable thing. And definitely, uh, I think it says good things about the Washington Post's engineering team. It's a fabulous place to work. I'll put a plug for it right there. But uh, yeah, a lot of credit also goes to, to our boss, Jeremy Bowers, who was very, you know, very encouraging to experiment. And he knew that things were going to get sort of hairy and not as fun this year. So he's like, you know, let's take this time, explore things that you're passionate about, and let's be really creative in our approach to this. Oh, so you, I think I understood this as you were doing this prototype in the summer of 2019. You're saying you did it this past summer, 2020. No, it, it was 2019. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. We started a year and a half out from the elections, yeah. When was the presentation? It was the sort of end of July in 2019, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Cool. It would have been, we, so we had four senior, senior engineers at the time. It would have been four prototypes, but one of the people was away on vacation that time, Susan Tyler, yeah. We're going to, I think, depart a little bit from Elixir land here because I, I want to talk about the data. Like, I'm really curious. First of all, you, I think you said that you're just reading like JSON dumps that are hosted on S3 somewhere. I'm really curious... For people who don't work in the news industry, like where does the data come from, this type of situation? Yeah, it's a super good question. And it's something that a lot of, not a lot of people know outside of the industry, actually. So the Associated Press, which most people probably know is like a you know wire service, they also have people all over the country that collect data on election nights and feed it into their system. And they are the main provider for newspapers. Also, this year, Google wrote, Google rolled out their own election results system in search results, we, which, of course, we were a little bit <laughs> nervous about because it cannibalized our pages because they, you know, AP was also feeding that. So the Associated Press has an API. So, you know, your basic REST JSON API that you have make requests against. There are other people out there aside from AP. One of them is called Edison. Edison is the service that actually delivers results to TV networks. So, you know, think of all, all the big TV networks that pretty much use Edison. And they were actually founded by a representative from each of those networks. And similarly, you know, JSON API, just like AP, it was like weirdly ported over from XML. So the, the variable names are all terrible. Like J type is a, is a, is for jurisdiction type, you know, things like that. <laughs> so yeah, we traditionally at the post, we've used AP. We had a contract with them, but we sort of wanted to reevaluate for this election cycle because oftentimes, TVs will get results and race calls first. And we wanted to have access to like, you know, as fresh data as possible. So we actually signed a contract with Edison as well. So we were using Edison and AP interchangeably, usually Edison for presidential, because people were most concerned about that, you know, getting that as soon as possible. 
and then AP Associated Press for lower ballot races and also uh, Senate and House races usually. But we'll sort of mix and match. We'll sort of look at each race and kind of, okay, which one do we want to use for this? Which one do we want to use for that? And can you give us a sense of like the quantity of data that we're talking about here? Like, was it was it large enough to cause any problems or require any interesting solutions around ingesting large amounts of data? Or is it just not that much? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Think of the problem like and we encountered it. Another engineer on our team, Susan Tyler, who actually is now a lead engineer, she sort of during the last fall pioneered this data fetching approach that used a bunch of AWS tools, primarily lambdas, which uh, lambdas would, which are serverless functions, which would fetch the data from AP. Let's just use AP in this example. Fetch the data and then write it to Dynamo, DynamoDB, AWS's uh, database, NoSQL database. We're writing a ton of data into there. And then basically the lambdas would get stitched together by step functions, which kind of run lambdas on certain conditions and triggers. So like one of the ones we would use is it would the step function was set up so that it would fetch the data, I would wait five seconds, it would check if the data had changed, it would fetch it again and check if it had changed. If it had, it would write it to Dynamo again. If not, it would wait another five seconds and just kind of you know restart itself at a certain interval. For early races like this, North Carolina third district race, the data actually is fairly small because if you have two candidates, you have like 12 counties, I believe, if I remember correctly. So you can imagine the JSON payload for that is fairly small. Once you start getting into primary land where you have like Super Tuesday was our big terrifying night initially because you have many, many, many states primaries as well as uh, presidential primaries as well as Senate House primaries. Also last fall, we covered the local Virginia state elections because as well as a national paper, we also cover especially, you know, Virginia, Maryland, D.C. local races. So pretty, pretty sizable payload for that as well. You know, think about all the Virginia House and state legislative districts, not as big as data at a certain at other companies where we're talking about like companies like big, big tech companies. It's still small compared to that. But when you think about that, you're trying to also broadcast all that data to the client and you have people you want to have people's browser is also on like memory limited, hardware limited browsers, like on phones, be able to handle that without crashing. And believe me, we saw some crashes. That's where the concerns start to creep up. When you were working, I'm guessing you worked on the real application after the prototype was finished, right? For sure, was yeah. there any moment where you were just like, oh, I'm working on this and I remember solving this problem in Elixir and like you solved it differently or you wished you had some Elixir tools or it was like maybe it was easier in Node. Can you speak to that experience a little bit? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I loved initially about Phoenix is that it just kind of handled all of the socket stuff. It was already, it just worked out of the box. I had to do very little to get it to work. I mean, the most I had to do was to think of the namespacing for uh, channels and rooms and stuff. And I remember kind of reinventing that with Socket.io, which is the node socket library we wound up using. And, you know, Eric Reyna, my colleague, did a lot of that work. But I remember kind of having to rebuild a lot of that in JavaScript, which is not as performant. You know, it doesn't do memory management as well. It's single-threaded. It was There were frustrations there. We didn't have the same concurrency that we would have had in Elixir. We basically had to scale up our cluster, I think, a lot more with Node than we would have had to with Elixir. So yeah, there were definitely, when it came to concurrency concerns and memory stuff, there were like frustrations. <laughs> was there anything that was easier? In JavaScript? You know, we're hearing both sides of the story. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I mean, I've been writing JavaScript for, I don't know, eight, 10 years. So <laughs> it's just the iteration happens a lot faster. I can write it a lot faster. I don't have to look every little thing up, which I honestly had to do with Elixir when I was writing it. I'm sure that would have dissipated with time where I would have gotten faster at Elixir, but yeah, just the speed. Also the community, I mean, I could turn to any of the engineers on my team who knew JavaScript in and out and talk to them about it. 
same thing for Python, which we, well, a lot of the lambdas and stuff were written in Python as well for the data fetching. So I'm curious if you think that in future, what, what do you call these prototype testing rituals? Pretty much that, prototype testing. <laughs> we don't have a name for them, yeah. Do you think that in the future you'll maybe give Elixir another shot? I would love to. We're also throwing around uh, Rust a little bit as well. And now that the election's sort of wrapped up, our team is going to get a tiny bit smaller and we're going to kind of all go work on other projects that are close to the newsroom. So I definitely am going to, again, pitch Elixir or maybe Rust for, for one of those projects. Especially since they're smaller, they're not going to need to be maintained the same way that an election stack does, where we need to have people coming in and out of it all the time, like 10 to 20 people. More contained apps, I think this might be a much better fit for. Simon, you said that you've been programming in JavaScript for about eight to 10 years. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit to like your personal background, like how you got started with programming, how you maybe landed at the Washington Post? Yeah. Well, I'll speak to the first, uh, the second part first, which is that I've, I've always been kind of a newspaper junkie ever since I was a kid. I just like, you know, I grew up reading the Times and I would like, I don't know why, but I, I would just love reading newspaper as a kid. Like even the, you know, the national news section and like the weather section, I especially love the data visualization on the weather section. I remember like just pouring over those maps, like the weather and pressure zones and stuff. But in terms of my studies, I definitely didn't study programming. I took a few computer science classes uh, in Java in college, but I was a, went to a liberal arts school and studied human rights. I was always really interested in kind of more uh, poli-sci humanities kind of stuff. I was working in nonprofits and just my, I, you know, I had a really supportive boss who just wanted me to learn on the job. So I worked at a digital agency called Whole Whale that worked with nonprofits to help them with their websites and A-B testing and analytics and stuff. And I, so I just built a bunch of websites on my own, learning as I was going for these various nonprofits, mostly in PHP at the time, then more and more JavaScript on the front end as it went along, as JavaScript became more you know, necessary. So from there, I did more data, visual, data visualization work uh, with JavaScript. I worked at a think tank called the Century Foundation, which is a progressive think tank up in New York. And I built basically a lot of their maps for their data, uh, live updating maps. And yeah, I went up with the Washington Post a few years later. I've been there for three and a half years now. When you were first getting started in programming, like what were some of the breakthroughs that really let you know that this was the career for you? I guess realizing sort of how necessary the work was in the changing world, I feel like I was sort of getting into the workforce at a time when there were just so many changes going on. Things were shifting towards being online versus anything else. And I think I was just that feeling when you finally figure out a problem you've been struggling with for days and days. A lot of my, in my early days, I was working on Drupal sites and PHP. And I just remember like writing my first like Drupal extension in PHP and finally getting it to do the thing, you know, be it like, you know, I don't know, turning some text blue. And it was like, oh my God, that was so cool. I don't know. And like, obviously being in a field that I knew that I would be able to have a job like in this economy, I graduated during, you know, 2010. The financial crisis was still going on, you know, being able to have a career that was dependable and stuff was also a part of the calculation as well. I'll be honest. I was a little bit surprised when we started talking and I thought the Washington Post was just a WordPress site. <laughs> I'm a little bit glad to find out that it's not. <laughs> a lot of people would be very touchy about that. We actually did use WordPress for a while as part of our sort of ecosystem. It was sort of patched together. But no, the post, I mean, especially in the past five or so years, as changes have happened, we've become very build-it-yourself kind of focused. Build-it-yourself and then also resell it to other papers through ARC Publishing, which is part of the post. 
that you know runs publishing software for other newspapers, uh, a lot of the big newspapers in the country. So yeah, it's very much like build it yourself and then resell it to other papers through Arc. We're focusing more these days, honestly, on just building our own tools, and like we're we're hiring a ton of engineers to keep kind of growing and working on our own platform because there's a certain benefit to being able to work with a reporter who needs this thing to build them exactly what they need to be productive. It's a really cool feeling to be able to deliver that and be able to like see a story get published that you know that you got to to work on and be a part of. Uh, it's a really cool feeling. Yeah, that was one thing I thought about asking is like, I'm actually from the D.C. area. I'm a dev in the D.C. area. And every interview cycle, every time I'm looking for a job, a recruiter is always hitting me up about a Washington Post job. And at some point I was just like, why is there always an opening there? Like they must be growing something, something must be being built. But over the course of the years, I was just like, is it like an ongoing growth situation? Or like, what are you guys doing over there where you just have an endless need for, for engineers? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I see the ads too. Like I, I'm, on, I'm on Stack Overflow, like looking for an answer or something. And I said, like, yeah, recruitment ad for the post. I think a lot of it honestly has been around ARC publishing has been a, you know, really good for the business in terms of bringing in money. So that has come back to help hire people at the post itself proper. But also, like, I think, you know, with the changing news newspaper landscape, a lot of the smaller papers have kind of gone out of business, which is really terrible. I mean, I think local news has really suffered a lot. And I've been really sad about that. But, you know, one of the results is I think that a lot of the money and the, like the attention goes to bigger papers like Post and the New York Times and, you know, Chicago Tribune. Papers like that can just grow because the market has been can expand to accommodate on their end. Yeah is totally off script, but I'm curious if you know about Substack and you have a take on that sort of entry in the media space. I have read some Substacks. I have enjoyed reading them, but as to the beyond that, I don't I don't know much about them, honestly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll tell a little bit about the model. Basically it's individual writers who with paid newsletters and I mean it's just exploded the last year. I've got friends that write and make really good money on people buying their newsletter. And I mean it's just a it's bonkers. It's a bonkers uh, sort of a uh, situation. I've got so many questions about like, I'm actually kind of curious about how the whole architecture looks over there because you've got the main site, which is the Washington Post. You've got, I'm sure, a ton of data that you're dealing with. Can you tell us a little bit about what the architecture looks like if you know, a new engineer was joining the team, how you would walk them through it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So at least on the, I can speak more to the elections pages because that's what I've worked on the most. Our main publishing platform is a crazy configuration of lambdas, basically. But the our elections pages are actually just HTML files served from S3, like static file host, which is, you know, nothing crazy there. We did that because we have these crazy traffic patterns, basically, right? Like most days we'll have, you know, 200 unique visitors on a page, and then a certain night we'll have literally millions of people. And we don't want to like deal with the, the load concerns of that. So from an early point on in our development cycle, we decided we were just going to statically pre-render all of our pages to S3 and serve from there because what 99.95% availability or something. I mean, like those pages will never go down. So starting from there, we use a framework called Next.js, which is based in Node and React. It uses React to render pages, pre-render them, and then we sync them to S3. So within Next.js, we have our React app which is all of our data visualization front-end features, maps, tables, you name it, which actually generate an entire full page, which we pretty much just took our pages from the main site and made them look the same as that. I mean, I remember there was a point where I was like copying each thing over 
And then, of course, we refactored it to use like a shared library that we've developed called Site Components, which is this tool that we can kind of use all over the site. To, so there's always there's only one button to load, and you just pick which color you want, and it loads it. Uh, it's, in a, it's an NPM package, and that's been super helpful. I would also plug, you guys have a great with like 70 repositories, police data. It's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, we're, I'm always pushing to open source more of them. I'm really hoping we can open source our, our map, uh, our map pipeline to generate our maps. Yeah, there's always concerns about open sourcing stuff, but I'm hoping that we'll have the time, especially over the winter, to do some more of that so that there's more public repos. So to talk about the maps specifically, something I worked a lot with Jason Holt on, my, my, my teammate I mentioned earlier. We had this issue where we knew we wanted to use SVGs. So traditionally, maps had been rendered using something called either Mapbox or, you know, there's other Cardo, there's other mapping tools on the front end, which can be a little slow and memory hoggy. So we wanted to go with something like WebSockets. That was an old web standard, SVGs, and really just toggle IDs and classes on them to change the way they looked because that alone is like super lightweight payload and very performant on phones. So we had this problem, though, where we needed to render them in React, though. And React usually takes JSON data and uses that to instruct with a template, you know, a whole page. So we had to kind of get an SVG sort of destructured so that React could read it and re-render the SVG. It was sort of this weird workaround that we had to do to be able to manipulate the IDs on the SVG itself. So we used D3 as a node package. Usually D3 is used in the client, I feel like, to kind of show things interactively. But we used the NPM package to render out the SVGs through this pipeline. And we built this whole CLI that did it with whatever options you wanted to pass in. You could you get like a state divided by county, a state divided by congressional district, a country divided by state, country divided by county, exactly, you know, yada, yada. It would render out the thing and then deconstruct into this JSON format. And that JSON would then go on S3. The next JS app would read that in render the map, and then it would be able to be live updated as new results came in. Those results would come in via WebSockets. Via We actually started using Pusher as a WebSocket client instead of Socket.io eventually, because it was just a managed service. The WebSockets would send in JSON data, which would then update the map, and it would color in as the results you know, progressed along through the night. The results came from DynamoDB, written to S3. So the Next.js app was actually reading from S3, and the results were getting pushed there so it was another issue of like downtime because the results are just JSON files on S3. There was no concern about them going down or disappearing or anything. The database, likewise, Dynamo is super stable. You know, AWS uses it for their own infrastructure. We weren't worried about that, but we didn't want to worry about database reads and any kind of um, latency there. So pretty much every all the data was on S3 and our final product was on S3 as well, all static. This might be a fun question and you can totally dodge it if you want, but I imagine that at an organization as old as the Washington Post that's been online for probably 20 years now, you've probably got some legacy code that was like pretty gnarly. Do you have any stories or any that come to mind? <laughs> I feel like we actually iterate through stuff for, on a pretty frequent cycle. I haven't encountered too much gnarly code. And a lot of it's because we don't, we're not sort of afraid to just tear things up and write from scratch, which is what we do with our election pages. Before this current election cycle, we had this code that was written in 2016 for the 2016 elections. And that was brand new in 2016. So we sort of threw that away and just started fresh. So like, actually, I feel like, no, <laughs> probably not what you'd expect at an old company. Yeah, that's amazing. I was going to say earlier that I doubt you'll get like a bunch of recruits from an Elixir podcast because nobody wants to go from Elixir to JavaScript. No offense. But I'm actually beginning to think that you might <laughs> because you're just really pitching it really well. And the culture sounds amazing. I would feel like an idiot if I did not ask you about the Dominion voting systems like news. And if you know about it, if you have a take on it. Dominion voting system? 
Okay, you haven't heard about this. No, sorry. <laughs> okay, no, okay. It's the election software that's basically under fire right now. It's, I don't know. Go read about it, and it'll just blow your mind, and everybody else should, too. <laughs> I have had my mind on a single thing, and that is this code in, like, maybe three repos for the past six months, so... <laughs> I haven't been doing a lot of reading, but I will check that out. <laughs> yeah, I think that was like an interesting, you know, we talked about having when we were talking about having this conversation, we kind of knew it was going to happen like right after the election. And, you know, this is something that you've been working towards for however many months now, years even. And, you know, you mentioned it's really nice that you're you're past it, you're past the date. But I guess what are your other thoughts or feelings about having this thing that you worked on for so long, kind of like past the date? Do you feel like it, it worked to the your best to the best of its ability? Or was there something that, you know, you felt like could have been done better? I mean, just like, this is a big milestone to reach. How do you feel about it? Yeah, you know, I've definitely talked about this with, with a bunch of my teammates since, you know, a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, I think one of the things that kept coming up is that we wish we could have done more. I mean, there's always that feeling like we could have done that extra data viz, we could have done, you know, that other optimization that could have improved this thing. And that's that's a sign of like a healthy, productive team that they always want to be doing more. That being said, we were we were pretty happy with how things went. There were no glaring issues, no real, no of course no downtime. I felt pretty good about it, and there was there was definitely a moment on election night, right before the polls closed, uh, where it just like sort of hit me that like yeah, a year and a half of work was about to go in front of like yeah millions of people, and also like my work was pretty much done on that, and that was oh my gosh, it was such a feeling of relief, but. Definitely got a little misty think, thinking about how much time and stress and had gone into it and, you know, how I really couldn't have done it without, without my team really working together and supporting each other. So, yeah. And so, like, for future projects, do you think, I mean, you mentioned a little bit that, you know, you kind of have some downtime now to maybe pitch other projects, pitch other languages. Do you think, and you, you mentioned you might, you know, try to, to create some room or some space for Elixir or Rust in there. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. Do you see future projects that would fit Elixir better? Or is it just like you're hoping to create an ecosystem where there's more languages than just JavaScript? I mean, how is that temperature there? I mean, yeah, the post is super supportive of, you know, I remember during my interview when I was first applying for the job, someone saying, like, if you can get it to work in Docker and deploy it, you can write it however you want, whatever language you want. And that was like something that got me super excited about working here, obviously, just the encouragement to sort of experiment. I'm definitely going to run with that as we start working on these smaller projects. I'm working on something now that is going to work with freedom of information access requests, uh, FOIA requests. And I'm, I'm excited to see how we can build that. Something I've thought about that we do is we're doing more and more live shows that have a chat feature. I think Elixir would be a really good fit for that. We're going to use, a, I think, a vendor to start with, but, you know, who knows? Maybe we could work on that more depending on how it goes. You know, obviously, <laughs> having a chat feature means dealing with all the headaches associated with people on the chat feature, which we'll have to see how much of an appetite there is for. But, yeah, definitely, I think that was something that, that came to mind there. Yeah. That sounds really cool. There's a lot of room to innovate in that space. I love this conversation. I want to give you the last word to make any final plugs or asks for the audience. Anything you want, the floor is yours. I actually did think of a sort of a funny story from the election night eve that y'all might enjoy. You were asking about the uh, the stack 
and how we spent a year and a half developing it, this super sophisticated system that my colleague Susan Tyler pioneered with the state functions and lambdas writing to Dynamo on these highly finely tuned crons. It was all automated. All you had to do is sort of click a button in the console or run a CLI command, and it would start fetching data for the results, and it would start our pages would start magically updating. Except there are some weird arcane bits of the election system, like these few townships in New Hampshire, one of them being Dixville Notch, which, because of some arcane rule, they're allowed to release their election results starting at midnight on election day, rather than when polls close for most states. So seven people, or no, there were seven votes this year, but there's between 10 and 20 people live in Dixville Notch. And because the APIs don't actually turn on for Edison and AP until like 7 p.m. or you know they don't start showing data until then. We had no way to get this data in at midnight. And because there are a lot of election nerds out there, journalism nerds who know about Dixville Notch and are like expecting to see those seven votes show up, you know, at midnight, I had to go into our database manually and find Joe Biden and Donald Trump's you know candidate ID numbers, find the cell look at the New Hampshire Secretary of State website and like manually enter in their results values. It was insane. We just hadn't planned for this at all. We planned for this super automated thing, but we didn't plan for these like seven people in rural New Hampshire casting their votes. That was insane. The audience can't tell, but Eric is cracking up right now. (laughs) Well, Simon, Glenn, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really glad that you're bringing Elixir to the Washington Post. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Simon Glenn Gregg, and my co-host, Sunday Mint, and my producer, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Just Use a Pen and Eric at Eric Ostrich and Sunday at Sunday Kim. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on adopting Elixir. Bye.